Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. I invite you to take out the Word of God and turn in it in the New Testament to the book of Acts and Acts chapter number 12. Acts chapter number 12. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn in the back part to page 102, and you would find yourself at Acts chapter 12. You know, when I was growing up in Glen Rock, New Jersey, when I was like five, six, and seven years old, the runaway favorite program on television for me was Superman. And George Reeves was the personification of Superman. Loved George Reeves. And uh, if you ever saw that show, it opened in a particular way. And here's the way that it opened. Faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Up in the sky, look. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, a mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. That was Superman, my favorite program in Glen Rock, New Jersey, growing up. But you know, there was something interesting about that program. It actually was a disappointment to me as I grew a little bit older because I fully realized Superman is not real. Now, let me ask you a question. If Superman was real, would you call on him? If Superman was available to you, and if he was at your disposal, would you call on him? And I think all of us would say, yes, if he was real, I would call on him. I'd call on him regularly. I'd call on him in multiple times and in multiple ways. You know, it's kind of interesting when you, when you look at Superman and, and you look at Jesus, it's kind of interesting that when you look at the legend of Superman and the person of Jesus, there's some interesting parallels there. I don't know if you ever thought about that. I mean, Superman was a, a strange visitor from another planet, you know, from another dimension. His original name was Kal-El, and his father was Jor-El. You might recognize the L on the end, which is the Hebrew name for God. This is illusions. Superman came to earth disguised. Jesus came to earth disguised as a little baby. When Superman came, he came to earth with powers and abilities beyond those of mortal men. I think we know somebody else that came to earth like that. Superman comes to fight a battle, and it's a battle for truth and justice. See the interesting, interesting little parallels there, sort of subtle little parallels. And so playfully, if you would, I have entitled today's message, Who's the Real Superman? Now, now certainly we know the answer to that. We know that Jesus is infinitely more than Superman ever could imagine to have been. 
I mean, he is the God-man. He's way more than Superman ever was. But here's an interesting thought. He is way more, infinitely more than Superman. And that being true, why don't we call on him in prayer more consistently? Just let that rattle around in your mind for a moment. He's infinitely more than this make-believe legend of Superman who we would call on if he was really available to us. He's infinitely more than that. Why don't we call on Jesus and God more consistently in prayer? Now, I think there's some great insight ahead for us in Acts chapter 12 today. We're going to get some insight into God himself and certainly some insight into prayer. And I would like to read from chapter 12, the first 17 verses, and invite you to follow along as I'm reading here. It says, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, Herod put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he, the angel, struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And Peter's chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And the angel said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Then Peter left and went to another place. Now, our, our plan as we begin to put our arms around Acts chapter 12 today involves three things. Number one, we're going to zoom in a little more carefully on the thought-provoking events that we have recorded for us in chapter 12. 
And then we're going to ask a penetrating question. So you might get ready for that penetrating question that is coming. And then lastly, we're going to sort of draw it all together by looking at some life lessons. So we want to begin by zooming in on these thought-provoking events. And I'm going to do something different today. I'm actually going to allow Peter himself to outline chapter 12 for us. In fact, I think when you look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12, that's what Peter does. And by the way, Pastor Mark is going to take us into 1 Peter beginning next Sunday. But I believe as Peter wrote 1 Peter 3.12, he was reflecting back on the events of Acts chapter 12. This is what Peter writes there. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So, using that reflection of Peter, we're going to outline chapter 12. The verse begins, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And I think that corresponds to chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. In other words, he is going to be emphasizing in these first four verses that God is alert to our trials. He is aware of our trials. He's tuned into our trials. And he is superintending and even calibrating them in our life. So look at verse 1. It says, now it came about that time that Herod the king. By the way, we need to understand that the Herods were a ruling dynasty in Judea. And there are more than one person that is named Herod. This is Herod Agrippa I. Now, now this guy, Herod Agrippa I, is the grandson of the Herod who murdered the babies in Bethlehem at the time that Jesus was born. This Herod is the grandson of that guy. This Herod, Herod Agrippa, is the nephew to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the Herod who beheaded John the baptizer, literally, in the original language, John the immerser. This Herod was one half Jewish, and he was a very crafty politician. This was a guy who knew how to buddy up to people. And when Herod Agrippa I was around the Romans, and remember the Romans had designated him to rule over Judea, he was a master at buddying up to them. He just could butter up to them and buddy up to them like you couldn't believe. And then when he was interacting with the Jews over which he was ruling, he was still a master of buddying up to them. One of the ways that got expressed was when, when the Roman Empire would mint a coin, they would have an image of the emperor on the coin. Under Herod Agrippa, when they did those coins, he eliminated the image of the emperor because he didn't want to offend the Jews. A lot of times, Herod Agrippa would make sure, even though the Roman Empire wanted a certain level of taxation, he made sure that he cut the taxation back and he buddied up to the Jews. In fact, Herod Agrippa, when you look at all the Herods, he by far and away was the most popular of all of the Herods with the Jews. And so he wants to buddy up to them. And so in verse 1, he laid some hands on some who belonged to the church. Remember, the Jewish establishment was against the emergence of the church, and he wanted to mistreat them. He wanted to ingratiate himself to the Jews, 
And he went, he went on from there. In verse 2, it says, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. You know, James and John were, were brothers, the sons of Zebedee. Remember them from the Gospels? Part of the original 12 disciples? You remember the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and how in Mark chapter 10, they came to Jesus and they said, hey, you're going to have a kingdom. <laughs> we we want to rule with you. Uh, one of us can be on the right, one of us can be on the left. Right next to you, Jesus. You know, and, and Jesus said, well, hey, if you, if you want to reign with me, that means you're going to have to suffer with me. And they both go, we're ready to do it. We're ready to do it. We're ready to suffer. Well, here we have an illustration of how that worked out in their life. And James, the son of Zebedee, was the very first of the 12 to die. And John, the brother, son of Zebedee, was the last one of the disciples to die. But he was persecuted. He was imprisoned. And many of you know that he ended up being exiled to the island of Patmos. But James is executed by Herod. And notice what happens in verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews. I mean, that was his motivation in the beginning. The Jews really loved this. Aha, you got rid of one of those disciples of that silly guy from Nazareth named Jesus. He decides, you know what? I think what I'm going to do is I'm going after Peter. I'm going to arrest Peter. I'm going for the kingpin. I'm going for number one. I'm going for the guy that has the keys. I'm going to impress the Jews even more here. And his intent, obviously, was to execute Peter also. But notice all this happened, it says, in verse 3. During the days of unleavened bread, he had seized him. He put him into prison, verse 4, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. Now, the Passover involved the Passover day and also involved the seven days of unleavened bread. That was all really called the Passover. It was an eight-day holy week. And so he arrests him at this time, but, but you know, I, I don't want to kill him during the middle of a, of a holy holiday. Nobody wants to do that. I mean, do you catch the irony here of religious hypocrisy? I want to murder somebody, but I want to make sure I do it ceremonially correctly when I'm going to murder somebody. And, he, and so he assigns these four squads of soldiers to guard Peter. Now, normally what would happen is if you were arrested, you would be guarded by two people. Uh, number one, you would be chained to a soldier. And then secondly, there would be another soldier who would then guard the door of the room where you were being kept. So you're chained to one guy, there's another guy outside of the door. But in this situation, He's got four squads. The idea is, you know, when we arrest Peter, we're going to have him chained to two people. Each arm will be chained to an individual soldier. And instead of one guy hanging outside the door, we're going to put two guys out there. So you have a squad of four. And then you have a squad of four. There's four squads, each doing a six-hour shift. So what was happening with Peter is he's put under maximum security here, maximum security. Now, why does, why does Herod Agrippa I do that? What else has happened in the book of Acts? 
You, you, you remember what happens when Peter is arrested in Acts chapter 5? The Jews there arrest him, not Herod, but the Jews arrest him. And he mysteriously walks right out of the prison, you know, because an angel let him out. And Herod's thinking, I know what happened. I heard about what happened that time. It's not happening the second time, I'm here to tell you. We got maximum security set up for him. And in essence, what we see was a seven-day countdown. We've arrested him. We're going to wait till the whole thing's over, and then we're going to bring him out, and boom, we're going to take care of him. Now, 1 Peter 3.12 goes on to say this. His ears, speaking of God, are attentive to their prayers. And that corresponds to verses 5 to 17 of chapter 12. Notice verse 5, Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And on the very day that this whole thing was, was to come down, that tells us that they had been praying for the whole week. They started praying when he got arrested because they knew where this was headed, and they had prayed for the entire week. There had been persistence in prayer on their part. And I don't know about you, but I always stop and I think about, I wonder what was actually said in the prayer meetings for, you know, for seven days, for an entire week. I'm sure there were some there who were praying, Lord, would you please, please show mercy to Peter. We pray that he might be released from prison. No doubt there were probably some praying who would say, you know, Lord, would you just allow Peter to be a bold witness as he's in that maximum security environment, may he just boldly speak the gospel. Probably some people might have even prayed, Lord, we, we know likely where this is going, and so we would just pray for Peter. We pray that he would die with dignity, that he would die with dignity like Stephen died. But they have been praying. And what is really interesting is, knowing the countdown, is that Peter was sleeping between the two soldiers that he was chained to. You know, he's headed for execution, and he is sleeping. It kind of reminds me of Jesus who was sleeping in the boat, you know, in the midst of the storm. And we don't really know why he was sleeping. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he was thinking about what Jesus had told him in John 21 when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to die when you are old. And maybe he just had confidence in God's promises and Jesus' promise to him. And so he just went to sleep knowing that promise. You know, maybe he was just like you and I. He had selected a verse. This, and his whole verse selection would have come out of the Old Testament. And maybe he was just standing on a verse of Scripture like Isaiah 41.10. Maybe he just said, that's my verse for this time. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not Anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I don't know exactly why, but he is sleeping. Now, now you have to understand, there is a lot of humor in this entire event in chapter 12. You know, you don't want to miss it. He is sleeping deeply, and verse 7, an angel of the Lord suddenly appears, and there's a light that shines in the cell. I mean, you know, Peter is like anybody. He would probably be in this dark cell, and he's very 
groggy, and suddenly there's bright, bright light comes on. He was in this deep sleep. He now has to wake up. He's probably in a daze, and we need to have an angelic alarm clock actually wake him up. He had to strike him in the side. Wake up, Peter. Wake up. And then what is really interesting to me is he, re he reminds me a little bit of a child, you know, when they're in a dark room and suddenly you flip the light on and you have to wake them up and get them out of there. And, and the angel talks to him just like he's a kid. He, he basically says to Peter, hey, get up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Get your clothes on. Get your shoes on. Put your coat on. Follow me. I don't know how long it took, but Peter's probably less like, what? You know, put on what? Okay, I'll put that on. He's getting all these things on to be ready to move on. And notice it says in verse 9 that, that uh, they go out and he begins to follow the angel and he didn't know what was being done, whether it was real or whether it was a vision. He thought, you know, I don't know, I'm still kind of sleepy here. Maybe this is just a vision like, you know, I had before with the four sheets coming down the four corners, or the sheet coming down with the four corners and maybe this is not another, another one of those things. But remember, the chains had fallen off of him and he passes past the outer guards. And then it tells us in verse 10, this is very interesting. They came to the iron gate that leads into the city. You know, the prison area had this iron gate. You can't get through the iron gate. And they come to the iron gate and it opened for them, it says, by itself. That word that is translated itself is the word in the original language, automatos. We get our word auto matic from it. They come to the big secure iron gate and it's a little bit like a motion detect auto door opener like we might see at a grocery store or something. You know, you're kind of wondering, how are we getting through that gate? And suddenly, gate just opens up automatically. And they get out into the street and, and, and the angel seemingly disappears, and Peter begins to realize, now I understand. This wasn't just a vision. I'm not just dreaming. This is actually happening. And everything that Herod wanted to do and all that the Jews were expecting isn't going to happen because I am free. And when he realized this, verse 12, he went out to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, John Mark, where many people were gathered together and were praying. I mean, the angel fetched Peter from prison, but prayer fetched the angel. And so he goes to this house of Mary, which was obviously a rather large house, and she even had servants that were there. The servant girl was there. And you know, sometimes when people come to the book of Acts, I think if it happened in the book of Acts, it exactly has to happen today. So people go to Acts 4 and 5, and they saw people selling their property to help meet the needs, and they say, that's what every believer ought to do. We should have no property. We should just sell all of our property. I mean, after all, it's in Acts 4 and Acts 5. But you know, you got to look around. And in Acts chapter 12, we have someone who has their house still. This is Mary, and it was a rather large house, which tells us it was not required of all the believers to sell all their property. It was an optional thing weren't looked down on if you kept your house. But this is where they would often meet. Now, you just, again, have to understand and appreciate the humor in all of this. I mean, there's just humor everywhere here. And what happens is in verse 13, he comes to the house and he knocks at the door of the gate. They're in this serious prayer meeting, you know, pray, praying for him. And a servant girl named Rhoda comes and she answers 
the door. And she recognizes Peter's voice. She came to answer the door. She doesn't actually open the door because when she hears the voice, she gets so excited. She doesn't open the gate, but she runs back in to the prayer meeting and announces that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept on insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, ah, it must be his angel or something. Don't, don't you see the humor in that? I mean, God got Peter out of the prison, but he can't get into the prayer meeting. And you know how it goes. She comes in, she goes, Peter's here. Be quiet, you silly, silly girl. You know, she's dingbat crazy. I can't believe she's saying all of this. You know, we're busy praying here. Almighty God of the universe, please deliver Peter from his, you know, that's funny stuff. And Peter just keeps knocking in verse 16. And it says they, it's kind of interesting to me, they plural opened the door. It was like, all right, we got to find out. Apparently somebody's out there and maybe it's the authorities we don't really know. So they all kind of collectively go to the door and open up the door as a group. You know, sometimes God answers prayer in unbelievable ways. And this is one of them. And I find it encouraging that God even honors weak faith. They had, they had no anticipation that was going to be Peter out there at all. Now, I, I want to hit pause for just a moment. And I want to move to that penetrating question. Are you ready for it? Sort of kind of open up your heart for a moment and let the question come in. And I've been struggling with this question myself. Here it is. Why do we struggle with prayer? Why do we struggle with prayer? Sidlow Baxter, and I one time had an opportunity to hear him, once said this. Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, and despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. Why do we struggle with prayer? I like what Chuck Swindoll, he said this, in our lives, there is not a lock that God can't pick. We may feel caged up in the past in our own fears or in destructive habits, but God is more powerful than any prison bars, real or internal. Nothing is impossible for him. They are helpless against our prayers. Nothing is impossible for him. Why do we struggle with prayer? And there's probably multiple answers to that question, but I want to highlight three of them. Why do we struggle with prayer? Well, number one, and all of this comes out of my own life. I hope you can identify with some of it. Number one is that we get high-centered on why and when. You know, we're, we're so... 
high-centered and high-focused on. We want to know the why, the why, the why, the why. We want to know when, when, when's, when, when's this going to happen, Lord? When, when, when? We get so high-centered on why and when that we end up struggling in prayer. I mean, think about even what goes on here in the book of Acts. Stephen, young and vibrant in ministry, is killed. And Philip, same kind of person, goes on in ministry. One is taken early, the other ministers for many years. Look, look, at, look at James, the son of Zebedee. He's executed, one of the 12. And Peter goes on to minister for many, many years. And you know, you could say, what? what? Especially if you're part of, of Stephen or James' family, you'd be saying, why, 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 why? I mean, why, like my own grandchild, Hannah Grace Hess, why does a child die in childbirth and another live to be 85 years old? Why? Why is one child born disabled, another child born athletically gifted? Why? See, we can get so hung up on the why I need all this why. I got to that we end up struggling in prayer. And it can be the why. It can also be the when. I mean, Lord, I've been praying for a whole day. Lord, I've been praying for a week. Lord, I've been praying for a month. Lord, I've been praying for a year. Lord, I've been praying for years. When are you going to answer? When are you going to act? When, 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 when? I need to know when. I need to know. And we get high-centered on the why and the when, and then we struggle with prayer. You know, in John 21, Peter, as Jesus was talking to Peter and John, he gets a little hung up on the why and the when, and you know, what's going on with me, what's going on with him. And, and the Lord said, when, when Peter says, really, I want to know more of the why, I want to know more of the when, and the Lord said to him, what is really that to you? You follow me, Peter. He's basically saying, don't get high-centered on why and when. Just follow me. Just follow me. Why do we struggle with prayer? Second reason, I think, and again, this comes from my own life, is that we fail to practice persistence. We fail to practice persistence in prayer. Sometimes we have the idea, well, I prayed it. It's still up there. But, you know, right here in, in, in Acts chapter 12 and verse 5, prayer was made fervently for Peter. This went on for seven days. They were practicing persistence in prayer. In, in James chapter 5, it says that Elijah, you remember him? It says Elijah was a man just like us. He was, he was a human being like us. And he, Elijah, prayed, it says, earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain. And then he prayed again, and it rained. But we learn from 1 Kings 18 that he went through seven seasons of prayer about these things. He was praying with persistence. He was practicing persistence in his prayer. And Jesus, Jesus knew we would need help with this. So in Luke chapter 18, he tells a parable. It's the parable of the unrighteous judge. You remember that parable where you have the unrighteous judge and this woman keeps coming to him and constantly knocking on his door because she needs him to, to operate and do something for him and he won't answer, he won't answer. And finally he says, I give up. You know, she'll never go away. I'll answer her request. And the lesson is that God's not like that. 
And he goes on to say, here's what I want you to learn, followers of me, is that at all times you ought to pray and not lose heart. That there's persistence in our prayer. You know, prayer is an expression of our dependence on God. When, and this is true for me. When I'm not praying, I know right away what my problem is. I'm not being dependent on him. And prayer is interacting with the living and powerful God. Now, we know that up here, which actually leads us to the third reason why we struggle with prayer, in my opinion, and that is our God is too small. You know, the circumstances, they're just too big. The people are too big. I mean, think about it. If Superman was real, what would we do? We would call on him. Well, someone is so much bigger, so far superior than Superman is there. Do you ever find yourself, maybe you're personally in a situation, or it's a situation that you know about some other people that you care about, and you, you know, you're involved with that, and you hear about that, and you have this response? You ever had this response? Or have you ever even said this out loud? Well, I guess all I can do is, is pray. All I can do is pray. You know what, when, when I think that or I say that, you know what that is? That's an incredible indictment on my view of God. Andrew Murray said this, beware in your prayers above everything else of limiting God, not only by unbelief, but by fancying that you know what he can do. Expect unexpected things above what we can ask or think. Now, I'm quoting from a lot of people today, so I decided I'm going to put up my own quote, okay? This is my quote. Prayer mobilizes omnipotence. Ponder that one for a while. Prayer mobilizes omnipotence. That's often when I am praying in situations and I come to the end, I add on to the end Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, which says, He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to His power. It's a way to remind me I don't want to limit Him down I want to expect unexpected things. Prayer mobilizes omnipotence. Now, having wrestled with that question for a moment, let's just return to the thought-provoking events, and we'll kind of summarize what all happens here. You know, when, when they all come out and see Peter in verse 16... It says they saw him and they were amazed. I mean, pandemonium breaks out. You can just imagine the clamor and the joy and the high fives and all the hustle and the bustle of everything that's happening. And in the midst of all of that, verse 17, motioning to them with his hand to quiet down, quiet down, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. You know, I, I, he's really saying, I don't really have time for a lot of questions here. They could be on my trail. They might be, have discovered that I'm out of the prison, and maybe they're on their way here. So what I want you to do is I want you to tell James, that's James the Lord's brother, a different James, who is the co-leader of the church in Jerusalem. And then it says that he left. He just, he left. 
which tells me it's not necessarily wrong to avoid trouble. Sometimes it's wise to avoid trouble. Now, where did he go? We don't really know where he went. We do know from 1 Corinthians that he was in Corinth in chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 9, verse 5. They, they were very familiar with Peter. But, but I think all of this was part of God's plan because he wanted to make room for the Apostle Paul to emerge in the church. And then we have the rest of the story uh, in the following verses, which we didn't read through. But notice it says in verse 18, when day came, and this is an understatement, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. It's like, now how did that happen? What in the world? And one of the reasons why they were concerned is that if you let a prisoner go, then you inherited their punishment. So you can tell they're a little motivated. Go, whoa, whoa, what in the world? How did this whole thing go on? And, and you'll notice that Herod ended up, verse 19, searching for Peter all over the city, and he couldn't find him. And, you know, this whole thing, when you, when you think people are saying, well, I was there, and then suddenly he was gone. You know, I was chained to him, and suddenly I, I, I realized the chains were on the ground, and he wasn't there. Sounds like an inside job, doesn't it? You know, people are, are covering things. And so he interviews them, and he says, okay, I'm getting the message. This must have been an inside job. And so he ordered them to be led away for execution. Probably all 16 of them, even though there were only four there, because it was an inside job. Could have been another one of the four who pulled the thing off. Well, then what ends up happening is Herod goes to Caesarea. Remember, that's really the the Roman capital of the area. And when he shows up, we won't go into detail in verse 20, though there's been a dispute between um, Herod and some other people from a couple of cities. And so they were trying to work this whole thing out because it was a dispute over food. And they most likely bribed one of those close to Herod by the name of Blastus to kind of get this thing all smoothed over. And so they were getting it all agreed to. And in verse 21, there was an appointed day and Herod put on his royal apparel. There was going to be this big ceremony. We've worked it all out. With all this pomp and circumstance that was to occur. And he puts on his royal apparel. Now, Josephus, the historian, tells us that Herod Agrippa had a robe that was made out of silver thread. And when he stepped into the sunlight, it just shimmered almost like it was electric. And so he comes out in his royal shimmering robe and in verse 22, again, there's more political maneuvering going on here. The people are crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod ate it up. Verse 23, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. He ate up the flattery and then he was eaten up. And rather than killing Peter, he was killed by the God of Peter because he did not give, as a ruler, God the glory. Verse 24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Now, now let's just step back from all of that. It's some pretty incredible stuff. And let's talk about some life lessons I think God has for us today. Here's the first life lesson is this. God will deal with our enemies. God will deal with our enemies. Those who oppose the person of Christ, those who oppose the church, those who oppose the followers of Christ, and we're seeing this 
all over the world right now. He will deal with our enemies. No one messes with the church of Jesus Christ and gets away with it. And so if you're sometimes wondering about that, just remember that. God will deal with our enemies. No one ever messes with the church and gets away with it. And, and, and you know, it's amazing how mortals like Herod attempt to sit on God's throne. They attempt to be the ones who are thinking, I'm in charge of everything. And it's just ultimately a comical thing again. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, it's interesting. It says there, the kings of the earth take their stand, and they counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. We're in charge down here. And you know what the response is in heaven? In Psalm 2? He who sits in heaven laughs. <laughs> that's, no way that's happening. God will deal with our enemies. In fact, in Jude 15, it says that Jesus Christ is coming back to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Herod found out, and God will deal with our enemies. Just be assured. Second life lesson God's sovereign plan is inscrutable, but always active. Romans 11.33 tells us that his ways are unsearchable. Got to know the why. Got to know the when. I'm going to get so hung up. Wait a minute now. I like the way the New Living Translation works in Romans 11.33. It says, how impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his methods. I'm not going to break my brain over trying to understand some of these things and get all of the whys and all the whens answered. There's just mysterious ways that he works. And the why and the when may be unclear, but the who is still king. And he wants us to trust him and to rest in him. Remember, it says that the just, that's a description of you and me, shall live by faith. And then the third life lesson is this. God works when people pray. You know, you know prayer is not like a, a drink machine or a snack machine. You, know, you just put your coins in and you just get whatever you want. That's not, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is interacting with the living and powerful God. Billy Graham made this fascinating statement. He said this, heaven is full of answers to prayer for which no one bothered to ask. Wow. F.B. Meyer said this, the great tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. And I'll, I'll tell you, this haunts me just a little bit because I just have this sense that when I walk into heaven, that's one of the first things I'm going to find out. You did not have because you did not ask. Didn't bother to ask. The unoffered prayer in my life. Prayer mobilizes omnipotence. Do you believe that? 
If we believe that, we need to call on him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this incredible section of the book of Acts. Father, we pray that you would just simply awaken us to the fact that you work when people pray. And we don't want to get to heaven and find out that we just missed answers because we didn't bother to ask. And may we realize that unanswered prayer is nothing compared to unoffered prayer. And that prayer mobilizes omnipotence. Father, we just thank you for that truth. We thank you that you even included us in this whole process. It blows my mind to think about that. That you use us in the unfolding and the outworking of your kingdom as we pray, you work. And we just, we just thank you for your grace. We, we thank you that you can bring strength to us when we need it. We, we want to thank you for the wisdom that you are ready to offer to us. We just thank you for the privilege of knowing you. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.